Galatians chapter 3, starting with verse 26 to 4, 7. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Lord, thank you for the transformation that's being described here. Thank you for the change in status that is being proclaimed here. Thank you for the, um, the altering of destinies, of futures, because of your kindness to us. I pray that we would live in light of that truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, James Proctor, in his hymn, writes these lines, and I think it sums up where we've been the last several weeks in Galatians. He says this, Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, in Him alone, gloriously complete. I love that phrase because I think it it sums up where we've been the last several weeks. And if you've not been journeying with us, I don't have time to recap everything. Uh, But we do have stuff online you can go and be a part of and journey through Galatians with us as we continue this journey. But in reality, that's what Paul is saying. It's like your works, you got to lay that down. Because this faith in Christ that has made us whole and made us complete, that is the game changer. And it's, it's, it's Paul expressing that it's not my trust in my abilities or my works, but it's my trust in Jesus' finished work, works that saves me and makes me right with God. And they're being tempted to believe this false gospel, this idea that I can do more than Jesus has already done to prove myself worthy of God's love. And Paul's saying you cannot. There is only one good news, and it is salvation through faith in Christ alone. Now, Galatians 3.21, Paul kind of talks about the confusion a little bit between law and grace because the Christian's always trying to figure that out. How does this work? In verse 21, he says, Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. It's not God part one in the Old Testament, God part two in the New Testament. There is no confusion between the law and his promise. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive, receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. There's something that's happened to you and me uh, in this freedom. Several changes in who we are. And it's so, so good. 
It's weighty. It's glorious. It is no small thing that has happened to you and I. Let's just read verses 29 again. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Did you guys hear that first part? You are children of God. Through faith in Christ, you and I aren't waiting to become children of God. We're not working our way to get to being children of God. We're not figuring it out, stumbling through life, trying to become a child of God. The scriptures make it really clear that through faith in Christ, you are a child of God. Through faith. It doesn't say through your hard works. It doesn't say by maintaining a 4.0 GPA. It doesn't say by doing the right things at the right time all the time. It says through faith, you are a child of God. That's a status change. The whole game has changed. Our identity has been completely transformed. Look at it this way. Um, For my son, Zeke, eight years old, you know, thinks he's a teenager. He'll tell you that. No matter how hard my son might be um, trying to let people know that he's not my son, because I know I'll embarrass him at some point in life. No matter how hard he tries, he and I are uniquely connected. My DNA and his DNA tells another story, even if he's embarrassed to call me his dad, even if he denies even knowing me. The DNA tests show something else, that he and I are uniquely connected. What's happened here is that we have become new. And by new, I mean our DNA has actually been transformed from that as a, of, of an enemy of God, living in the world, the kingdom of darkness, being transferred to the kingdom of light. His children. There is an identity shift that happens. And Paul uses two explanations to kind of tell the church how this has come to be. And Paul explains the experience of baptism, and he talks about clothing. Now, if you've been in the church at all for any bit of time, baptism is this this thing we do. But it's not a work that saves us. Baptism, you know, literally being dunked underwater and coming back up, is a symbol of what God has already done in us by our faith in Christ. So we just, in obedience, go, Jesus was baptized, I want to be baptized. I want the world to know that everything has changed for me. The internal thing that God has already done is just declared when we go under the water and we come back up. Dead to life. That's the picture of what God does when he rescues. And so Paul is saying that you are a new people. You are dead to yourself, but you are so alive to Christ. I think sometimes as Christ followers, we forget that we're dead, yes, to ourselves, and then we just live there. I'm dead. Dead. But that would mean you just got stuck underwater and held there for a really long time. The other part of the story is you have been brought to life in what Christ has done. And sometimes we forget that. 
But the second picture that Paul gives us is that of clothing. And when I I try to explain this verse of putting on Christ, I do this with students this way. There are three ways that I compare this whole new being clothed in Christ to to a teenager, and you might be able to relate to some of them. But people recognize you by your clothes, right? Like if you live in a household with people, you'd be like, oh, so-and-so would so wear that. Like for me, it's a jeans and t-shirt. Oh, you would wear that t-shirt, but you're going to have to get rid of these t-shirts to fill your drawer with other t-shirts that you're going to wear. But you know, people are identified by their clothing. You know how that works. And this is what Paul's saying. You have put on Christ. You are being identified as his. Second way would be how, how close are your clothes to you right now? For some of you, your skinny jeans are making them way too close, but just kidding. It's freedom in Christ, right? You know what I'm saying? I can't wear skinny jeans. I'm just jealous of everybody. I lifted weights in high school. I never recovered. But the point is, your clothing is the closest thing to you. It's the closest possession you own, correct? Some of you would love to hold your Xbox Ones as close as you hold your clothing to yourself. Some of you would like to hold your DVD cases, your collections, your money as close as you can to yourself. But your clothing actually takes up closest proximity to your body. This is a picture of Christ putting on Christ like new clothing. And the last one, and of course all the middle schoolers laugh, is clothes cover your nakedness. Right? I mean, middle school, naked. Some college students laugh at it. I mean, it's just the idea of we're all naked under our clothing. That happens. That's the way it works. But God has been in the business of clothing people since the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, he didn't kick them out naked. He actually sacrificed an animal and clothed them. And in the same way, what we're seeing Paul saying is you're putting on new clothes. Christ covers us. So when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' finished work. He sees Jesus' righteousness. This new clothing that we're wearing is amazing. And then Paul transitions a little bit. He says, okay, you're new, so there's some implications for you being new as the people of God. And Paul says this good news leads to a logical conclusion. And one of those conclusions is it breaks down the barriers that humans are so good at building up. We are fantastic, if at anything, of building walls. And Paul says the gospel breaks down barriers in the church. This is a hard thing to teach a culture in a society that does not care about the gospel. But within the church, there are several barriers that are never to keep us from being together. Um, Paul addresses an idea of all one, and I want to show you some pictures um, that you are pretty used to seeing around Asheville. Like, I mean, cars completely covered with bumper stickers. Like, the whole thing. I mean, I've seen vans covered. I mean, Christians do it too. I mean, it's just strange. It's a strange phenomenon that, that we think people have time to read all of our thoughts while we're driving. Like the, me, me, wear, me having a car like that is saying, please, everyone care about what I think. Look at my stickers. And one of those stickers that's really popular right now is the all one sticker. It just says all one. My neighborhood, pretty much every car in my neighborhood has all one on it. Now, 
I, let's just be real for just a second. Because the people that I've had this conversation with that talk about all one really are saying, leave everyone alone. This is a difficult concept to have to walk through. If you're saying that all one means we're all one human family, I get that. If you're saying we all have hopes, dreams, aspirations, we want to go places, yes, we are. We're all human beings. We're this, this giant dysfunctional family. I get that. But to say we're all headed in the same direction is not correct. We aren't going the same direction. We are all real people headed in a whole bunch of different directions. And the thing about the church is Christ determines our direction. Jesus determines where we go, how we get there, how long we stay, what we're there for. Not society, not culture, not man, but Christ alone. Paul uses the words, you are all one in Christ Jesus. He, this does not remove distinctions in practice or culture or class or gender. You and I are not identical or interchangeable. We are unique. But Paul says, in Christ, we're all one. That means the social implications of that are, I am a Christ follower before I am any other label. I am in Christ. I am his before I am anything else. And he uses a couple of illustrations of how this oneness becomes possible. There is no longer Jew or Greek. And what he's saying is that the cultural barriers, the race barriers that were built up by man have been removed because of what Christ has done. See, he's not asking everyone to put on the silver jumpsuits and drink Kool-Aid and wear the right kids' tennis shoes. He's saying that you and I can accept one another's different cultures because Christ has unified us. Christ is the uniting factor. My race or my culture doesn't become the most important thing. Though it is still important, it is not most important. The gospel is. He moves on to talk about there's no longer free nor slave. He's saying that this class or status thing that we like to do among ourselves, the walls that we build based on class, cannot exist among those who would call Jesus Lord. And these walls still exist. When we were in China, we went and had an opportunity to sit with a woman and her parents She's the only believer in her village, and there was a dirt floor, like, almost like a cave that we were sitting in. And we got to, to just talk about the Bible. She's a believer. She has her own Bible. She reads it all the time, but she's so hungry for the people of God to hear from God, from somebody. And so what she does in China is she attends a government-run church. The government gets to tell this church, hey, you can talk about these things, but you can't talk about these things. And they, because of their poverty, when they go, they travel miles and hours to get to the closest government-run church. When they get there, because of their status, they are forced to sit in the back of the church. Because their clothes are not the nicest. Her mom's clothes are not the nicest, but they're so desperate to hear the good news. They're not allowed to participate in different events that the churches run because of their status. This is very real. It was real then, it's real now. Favoritism because of status, gospel says, can't exist. To push someone out because of a lower economic status can't happen. But see, there's a trend among my generation. They think they're more spiritual because they don't have anything. 
They like to put it on the other end of the spectrum and they say, well, rich people obviously don't love Jesus because they have stuff. That's my generation's thought on my superior spirituality because they obviously don't love Jesus as much as I do because I've given it all up. No, you never earned anything, first of all. (laughs) But secondly... To put up a wall that says, I can't worship with you because my spirituality is higher level than yours because I don't have that much. Paul is saying, cannot exist because of what Jesus has done. He's broken down the statuses so rich and poor can come together because of what Christ has done because those statuses no longer define us. And then the last one he talks about is male and female. The gender barriers that have been built up. And before you get out your firing rifle squads and stand up and go, what are you going to say, Jason? What are you going to say? Say it. Say it. Let me help you understand Paul's day. In Paul's day, this was probably the strongest barrier. Women were considered completely inferior to men, which was not God's intent. You have to go all the way back to Genesis to see God's original plan for men and women created in his image, reflecting God, and to have one without the other, you miss the full character of God. Because women are equal in Christ before God, they can be seen as just as gifted and able as men. Again, the Bible does not promote 100% sameness, which would be an egalitarian view. The Bible actually promotes a, a complementary view, that you can't have one without the other. They both work together, reflecting this God who desires His people to show off who He is. The Jewish culture, among most other cultures surrounding, saw women as second class and even property. Discrimination was out of control because of gender. In Jewish culture, two women's vote would equal one man's. This was a huge barrier for Paul to begin to address in a culture that did not want to hear it. Did you know that the Bible is the only religious text to specifically give worth and value to women? In Genesis, it makes it very clear God's intent. Man, we came along and we screwed things up. Jesus was invested in and cared for and treated with great respect the women who told his stories. You know, one of the first missionaries of the day was a shady Samaritan woman hanging out at a well. Jesus sat with her. Even his disciples were like, why are you talking to that woman? But Jesus knew that at this encounter, she would go back and tell her village, and her village would ultimately come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, secondly, I mean, the, one of the main evidences for the resurrection is that a woman was the first to announce Jesus was alive. See, if the disciples wanted to, to facilitate a lie, they would have shot themselves in the foot by saying a woman saw him first. They would have said a man saw him first, and then people would be like, oh, yeah, yeah we believe it. Yeah, because a man saw it. It's right. It's true. Did you know that the scripture is the only religious text that commands husbands to love their wives and not just in an emotional, feely, touchy, good way, but to die for her just as Christ died for the church? Men have been put in in a position of authority for a reason, and that authority is based on submission to Christ and serving him in turn causes us to serve others. That position has been abused. Absolutely. But Paul is saying 
No longer can men look on women in one way and women look on men in another way, but saying for a man to look on a woman as lesser is to miss the social implications of the gospel. And for a woman to look on a man as lesser is to miss the transformative power of the good news. We live in a society that abuses gender status, yet at the same time we live in a society that completely denies and ignores Distinction between men and women. The gospel does not promote sameness, but it promotes oneness. Unity and uniformity are not the same thing. And the good news creates unity. How does it create unity? Well, because I know in Christ, I'm a child of God. And if you're in Christ, you're a child of God. I can't look down on you. There's no reason to. Secondly, because if, if, if I'm a child of God and I look on you with jealousy, that doesn't make sense because jealousy would mean you have something I don't have, but I'm like, you know who my dad is? I got everything. I ain't got no reason to be jealous of you. Praise God that you got a new car. And I didn't. Because my dad owns every cattle on every hill that there is. I got what I need. But did you know that the bad news of the gospel also creates unity? The bad news is that none of us are good on our own and we can't fix things and we're not strong enough and we're not smart enough to rescue ourselves. And because there's bad news that we all fall under, we're not looking down on each other. We're not looking down going, man, you're too far away. There's no way you can get there. No, I'm too far away. And if God can rescue me, he can rescue anybody. The good news creates unity and even the bad news of the good news creates unity. In this belonging, Paul talks about a shift that has happened. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like little children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. So next time your kid leans in like, Dad, what am I, a slave? You can be like, well. (laughs) Paul begins and reaches for a very Roman practice in this description. He's not describing a Jewish tradition. He knows his, he knows his, uh, his audience, and he's willing to reach outside of Jewish tradition and culture to use something from their culture to help him understand what has happened. And what he's describing is the Roman passage of rights, you know, rights to become a man. And with the Roman culture, they typically, the dad could set the date for his son to become a full-blown citizen of Rome. And typically that age was 14, and they would do it one season of the year, and it was called the Roman Liberalia. And the idea is that these children who are under guardian protection until 14 years old, which for some Roman children, they never really interacted with their dad. Because they had these guardians, and what these guardians did was they made every decision for these kids. They made every choice. They told them where they were going, what their schedule was, where they were headed. And so Paul's saying it's like they were slaves. They couldn't make a choice for themselves, and for good reason, right? Because if you give an 8-year-old $100, what's that 8-year-old going to do with $100? I mean, think of us. We're just, in my opinion, we're just bigger, wealthier versions of 7th graders. That's what we are. That's who I am. I'm a seventh grade version of myself. I just have a lot more freedom to mess things up. When I lived under the protection and the guardians that I had, 
they saved me from some of my stupid mistakes. And what Paul is saying is the law was given to us as a guardian until Christ came. This guardian allowed us to stay close to who God was, although it didn't offer salvation, it kept me safe. And so these guardians that were placed over these, these children until 14, when this rite of passage came, what they would do is the, the children typically had these togas that were marked with like purple on the outlines. And because it was a child's toga, it was probably filthy because they play all day. They do these things, and so they would get worn. And what would happen at 14 is the dad would step in, and he would take the old ratty kid's toga and put a brand new white pure toga on them. And this was not just signifying that they were now Roman citizens, but this son was now a brother to his dad. Not just was he becoming a man, but he was becoming an heir to this, this relationship status had changed. He was now a brother, full owner of everything that the father has. And what's unique about the Roman culture was for those families that were childless in those days, they were allowed to adopt one of their servants. And at this adoption, one was no longer a slave, but now had every legal right and privilege that the family had inside the house and outside the house. So if a fellow servant saw an adopted child now into this family who was a servant walking in the streets and tried to treat him as a servant, they'd be like, hold up. (laughs) I'm a servant no more. I have the same rights and privileges that my family has. An identity change. The idea here is sonship, being sons of God. Now, some, some versions of the scripture have actually kind of tried to make this a little easier to understand, and so they say children of God, but there are some, most of the translations have kept sons of God because it was a big deal, and it's a big deal to Paul's culture because in that day, women could not inherit. They could not be inheritors. And so when Paul is saying there's no longer male nor female, but Christ is all that matters, it meant that these women could fully inherit every promise of Abraham. They were fully invited into the story through faith in Christ. So to say they are sons of God is not to deny them as females, but to say you have the right to inherit all that God has. This is a big deal. A child of God can have confidence and boldness every day, not fearful of anyone or anything. Why? Not because of me, but because my dad owns this place. Like you've seen movies, you've seen the, the rich kid abuse his power. He's like, you know who my dad is? I will have you fired. Ultimately, this is what we're saying. We're saying, do you know my father? I don't have to be and get everything you have. I don't have to compete with you. I don't have to try and have all the things the world throws at me to complete myself or to find my identity in. I don't have to have those things because according to Scripture, I have everything that God has. This is a major identity shift, and it's revolutionary, it's liberating, and it's freeing. The most amazing part about being an heir, a child of God, is that God now treats us as if we have done everything Jesus has done. Let that sink in for just a minute. 
God now looks on us as if we have done everything that Jesus has. And the way we know that is because Paul says we're crying out because of the spirit prompting in our heart, Abba, Father, we are calling God Daddy. The same right that Jesus had, we now have because the spirit lives in us. What a privilege. What an honor. What an invitation that Paul is saying, your status in every area has been completely transformed Tim Keller, um, a pastor, gave this example I heard one time. And he talked about the mentality of the church where we're at today. And he said, most of us in this room understand a death row pardon. Like, that's what we feel like we've been given. And we've been forgiven of our sin. But when a person is given a death row pardon, they walk out and they're like, i got to make a life for myself now. i got to figure out what i got to do, find my worth, find my identity. i got to make a life for me happen now that I've been pardoned. And what Tim Keller says is he gives this example of we've not only been given a death row pardon, but we've also actually had the medal of honor hung around our neck. Like we've actually done something amazing. And it seals us up. We are his. And I'm not trying to prove myself or earn anything else, but it's done. Death row pardon, medal of honor. This is the picture of what the gospel does to the human heart. We have been pardoned, but we've been given every blessing that Jesus deserved. As the band comes and we close, this whole idea of of Father, I know this is not an automatic in this world today. Some of you are having a really hard time with this sonship, adoption, father picture because of your earthly experience with fathers, and I know that's reality. But I'm pleading with you, I'm begging with you to allow God to to show himself to you as the faithful father he is. I know we have problems with that phrase in our society because man is sinful and makes terrible decisions with the freedom we've been given. But God is like no earthly father. And I give you this example. Kai, come here real quick. Come here. All right. So when you come into my bedroom at 2.30 in the morning and you've climbed out of your bed, what do you normally ask me to do? Um, put me back in my bed. Yes, he does. And what else do you say with the, about the blanket? What do you want me to do with it? Cover me up. You're right. I do. You do want me to cover you up. Thank you. There you go. That was a tender moment, right? I don't do tender until 7.30 in the morning. Typically, my response when Kai comes in is, what? Man, you know how to cover yourself up. Why did you get out of bed to come to my room and tell me to put you back in your bed? Stay in your bed. I try to be the tender father, but it's really hard. I'm like, fine, I will put you back in bed, but I will not be happy about this. Because typically I'm awake from then on out. But this is not the way God is. Because God does not sleep nor need slumber, 
any time of the day or night, looking to him to cover you, be present with you, sit with you. God's intent is to cover his children and protect them and bring safety to know that I have a father in heaven who does not fail to keep his children covered. This is the promise. You know, as you guys go this week, I hope to leave you with this picture. My, uh, my second son, Jude, loves the routine at night when you get him on the bed and he's like, all right, cover me up. And like, you have to tuck him in because every nook cannot happen because otherwise something bad happens, right? Because you, you've got to be tucked in real tight, like suffocating. That's how he likes it. But what's amazing about the covering of God, and, and I hope what you'll begin to understand about being the child of God, is the covering of God helps you and I through the week. And what I mean by that is, I'm able to stay covered up by God, and the, te- the, the temptation is to be like, oh, I see you over there, money. I see you, money, trying to tell me I need you to be successful and complete in life. But do you know my dad? He's got me covered. Oh, I see that relationship over there, thinking that that relationship will complete or satisfy. Wait a minute. Do you know my dad? I'm his kid. That's the relationship I need. I see that temptation over there. Yeah, I get it. It looks good. But do you know my dad? He's got me covered. You know, it's not, it's not a hope or a, a dream that he has us covered. According to the scripture, through faith in Christ, he has us covered. So this morning as we respond, my hope and my prayer is that you will understand just all that has happened because of the gospel. No longer a slave or someone living in darkness, but a child who can approach Abba, Father, Daddy, God. Because of Christ, not because of me. So this morning as we respond, there's going to be some elders, some gel leaders standing over there that would love to receive and pray for you. If you're just like, I don't even know what to do or respond with, I just need you to pray for me. They would love to. And I'm going to be standing over here, and if you're one who would say, I don't know what this covering of Christ actually looks like, and I'm one who would love to find out how to do that, what that looks like, what it means then I'd love to pray with you. And if it means moving into coffee or something later this week, that's fine too. But the good news is shocking. And it is too good. It seems too good to be true. But it's the truest thing that there is. And so why don't you guys stand with me and we'll pray. Father, I ask that in this time that your heart for your people would be communicated loud and clear. I pray for whatever warped views of you we have in our brains, somehow you would be able to shatter by the power of your spirit. I pray that you would help people see you correctly. And Lord, in response to seeing you correctly, just want to love well. Lord, I ask that we would return to you if we've run. I ask that we would repent and confess that we've looked other places and that, Lord, you are faithful and just to forgive us all unrighteousness. You bring us back. Thank you for that.